Hey, this is Reg Harvick, and today I'm here with Peter Fandel, who is the Director of Product Management at Rocket Software. Uh, Peter, welcome. How did you end up in the world of mainframe? Oh, well, thank you for having me today. Um, how did I end up in the world of mainframe? Well, I, I uh, started out uh, in um, factory automation and process control, um, bringing um, expert systems, real-time expert systems to those industries. Um, and Unix was, I guess, the primary operating system that I used for, for many years in, in that domain. And uh, Rocket acquired the company where I was working oh, about 21 years ago and decided they wanted to apply the technology we had built to the mainframe uh, and mainframe oh. applications. And so I came at the mainframe from an outsider's perspective, um, uh, more comfortable always uh, with, with Unix uh, rather than ZOS. Um, and so the first um, sort of engineering team that I was in charge of at Rocket was the team that was porting uh, open source languages and tools to ZOS. Uh, and so that's always been the perspective that I came at it from. When you say porting to ZOS, you're obviously talking Unix system services, not uh, Linux. Um, porting stuff to USS is one of the most interesting things in the industry because on the one hand, USS was the first truly POSIX compliant Unix, but on the other hand, I think probably the safest word used to describe it by people who've actually tried to port it to it is funky. Uh, what was your experience with? Uh, well, very much so. <laughs> uh, and uh, C programmers uh, have for decades made assumptions um, mm. in, in their programming. Uh, one really sort of obscure assumption is that uh, the letters in the alphabet are <laughs> continuous when you translate them to, um, to uh, numbers. Mm. Uh, and mm. so, you know, people were saying, you know, coders will sometimes say, so, so long as this character is between lowercase a and uppercase z, then it, you know, must be a letter in the alphabet. That doesn't work in mm. Epsidic. Right. Uh, and so, as, as many of you know in this audience, um, the mainframe uh, predates the, def the invention of ASCII. Uh, and mm. so, um, that's one of the, the, that is the heart of porting to, uh, to the mainframe, to ZOS, is dealing with the character uh, code page conversion issue. Mm. Uh, and so anytime that the program interacts with the file system uh, or with pipes, uh, you need to worry about that. And that's, okay. um, you know, a lot of what, what goes into porting uh, on the mainframe. Mm. Well, I have to admit, my brain is just full of images of all the contrast between EBSIDIC and ASCII. I mean, I could sit here and list them off and put everybody to sleep, which is not the goal here. But uh, now that said, uh, there's, there's also interesting things like big endian and small endian numbers and stuff like that. Um, how, what do you find is the most effective approach to as dynamically as possible enable the, the, the smooth conversion between the uh, distributed Unix way of doing things in the mainframe USS way? Well, I'd say what, what has made it um, uh, smooth is uh, we've been doing this for about 10 years now. And so the engineering team has put in place a lot of automation. Uh, mm. Automation in, in some cases that actually automates the porting itself. Um, yeah. for, for some of our ports, 
we actually can uh, generate ZOS compatible binaries um, just from the compiler link, uh, thanks to a custom GCC glibc port that we did uh, that takes care of the code page conversion uh, in the, in the um, compile and, and the linking to the libraries. Uh, so that doesn't work for all of our ports, but for Bash, for example, it does work. And it means that we can generate a new port of, uh, of Bash directly from the source code downloaded from the community uh, without a single edit to any of the sources. Um, wow. that's, a, that's the exception, um, but that's an mm -hmm. example of automation that we built up over the last 10 years. Uh, also, automation in testing is crucial. Uh, what mm. we do is we have an automated harness that runs the built-in tests that come with any, any open source project, plus a whole suite of custom ZOS specific tests that the team has written over the years. And we execute those tests, the, the full test suite on uh, Ubuntu. And then we oh. also execute it on ZOS. And anytime that the results are different, that's where we investigate. Mm. Um, and that saves a lot of time to, to have that fully automated. We, we essentially drink our own champagne in that we mm. use our own ports in, uh, mm. in our own internal DevOps tool chain for building and testing and, and, and releasing these ports. And so what I hear you saying is this smooth. experience, so this is actually part of what you offer your customers as well as all this experience of being able to smoothly port stuff. Is that right? Yes. Exactly, because we, we have built up a, a, an open source um, DevOps tool chain uh, that we use internally. And that's what a lot of our customers are, are moving towards. They, they don't want to be maintaining a, a separate DevOps tool chain just for uh, building their mainframe applications. It's, uh, it's expensive. But more importantly, there are, they are finding it's harder and harder to find anybody to staff those teams because mm. the, the folks, the, the, the gray beards, if you will, that um, are familiar with traditional uh, mainframe interfaces and tools are uh, fast retiring. They're exiting the job market for one reason or another. And it's really hard to get a kid out of school or, or you know, millennial developer to uh, embrace uh, 3270 uh, green screen oh. emulators as, as an interface. Now, one of the things I hear implicit in what you're saying is the C programming language. I, I'm, I'm gonna bring us around to talk about COBOL before the uh, this recording is over, but tell me a bit about the role of C in all of this. Well, most, most of the DevOps tools and most languages used uh, especially the DevOps tools, and to some extent, languages that are used today uh, in application development uh, are in fact written in C. Um, like Python. Git is written in C, curl is written in C, bash is written in C. Uh, all of these open source tools that um, developers expect to be available wherever they do their work, uh, those are in fact mm. written in C. So. Uh, 99% of the code that we port uh, to ZOS is written in C. Oh, now, uh, of course, uh, Python also is written in C. Are you finding you're doing a lot of porting of Python uh, directly or is it mainly C? Uh, well, if it's written entirely in Python, uh, no porting is necessary most of the time. Ah. There's, there's 
nothing to it. But uh, there are a significant number of important Python packages that are in fact written in C uh, for performance reasons. And mm. those do need to be ported just like any other C programmer, just, just like any other C program. Cool. Uh, now I understand that one aspect of all of this porting and this uh, open systems approach you're doing is an involvement with uh, this thing called Zoe. Uh, any thoughts about how that kind of fits in in the present and the future? Oh yeah, well, Zoe is hugely important. Um, it's it's a different kind of open source in that um, the the development of these ports versus Zoe uh, is is quite different work. Um, uh, I, what I refer to as the ports are exist are poor are languages and tools that have been around for a long time some of them like mm. uh, you know uh, the, the zip tools and uh, and bash bash in particular have been around for probably 20 years um, and we're just making them work on zos zoe on their hand on the other hand is bespoke open source so mm. zoe is uh, open source that didn't exist uh, before it was introduced in 2019, and it was designed from the ground up um, to be for ZOS. Uh, and uh, crucially important for modernization, uh, Zoe is essentially a, uh, an ecosystem of interfaces to ZOS. And when I use the word interface, I mean all definitions of that word. So graphical mm. interface, programmatic interface, APIs, mm -hmm. uh, uh, also command line interface. Mm -hmm. uh, we're coming out with a chat, um, a, a Zoe chat component within the, the Zoe community. It's not released yet, but maybe at the end of next year. Um, so all these different ways of interacting with a machine, uh, Zoe is making it a modern interaction using modern technologies, modern interfaces, to that to that ZOS backend, uh, and it is a, a crucial part of mainframe modernization. What I hear you implying is that there's more than one kind of open source that you're dealing with. Yes, there, well, you're referring absolutely. to the non-mainframe. Go ahead. Yeah, right. I mean, Zoe is um, it's open source. It's uh, written in uh, a lot of it is written in Node.js. Uh, oh. uh, some of it is written in C. Um, uh, some of it written in Java, um, but uh, like I said, it's it's open source that was uh, written expressly for the purpose of interfacing with ZOS. Uh, so there's no porting involved. Mm. Got it. Yeah, that's one of the big challenges of the whole open source movement. Of course, is is porting. Um, you know the the uh, old saying about Unix. You know that Unix is supposed to be right once and and port everywhere. It's actually right once and debug everywhere. Uh, the nice thing about Bespoke, I guess, is they can be out open source for this particular platform. Um, but uh, that's a, what, what are some of these, these challenges then you see uh, of, of you know, Bespoke as distinct from the challenges of, of porting all over the university in, uh, in generic open source? Well, the challenge there is that uh, you actually have to code the features. <laughs> yeah, right. right? Uh, with the porting, you know, we're not, we're not, for the most part, the porting team is not writing uh, any new features. They're not implementing new features. To some extent, of course, they are. The, the feature of uh, converting between ASCII and EPSIDIC, for example. Um, 
but it's it's mostly the porting work is mostly a, a little bit of coding, a lot of testing, um, and a lot of um, you know running of infrastructure um, and and tooling for delivering uh, the the code to the uh, to the customer. But in the case of Zoe, you're developing new features from scratch. So, uh, you know, there's, you need a, a larger number of engineers. I would guess that you've probably got uh, upwards of a hundred active developers uh, working on, on, in the Zoe community from a variety of different companies. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a much larger project. Now, uh, I, I'm gonna get to security next, but before I do though, I just wanna talk a little bit about more languages because uh, two other languages that I think we need to surface. And one of them is COBOL and the other is VS Code. And of course their VS Code is not precisely language. And the neat thing is that COBOL even can ride on top of it. But maybe if you could just get a sense of, of how you perceive the role of, of both COBOL and VS Code in this whole uh, open source approach on the mainframe. Sure, well, well, well in the case of COBOL, it's, it's really um, our reason for being in the porting team uh, is to make the tools that enable a uh, multi-platform uh, off host, not on ZOS uh, mm -hmm. DevOps pipeline, be able to uh, build COBOL programs and test them. Mm -hmm. um, and so COBOL is essentially the test subject um, that needs to be, um, uh, the code checked out, the, the, the compile, the link, the, the test suite, um, the deployment. Um, it's, it's the test subject of the DevOps pipeline. Um, and so it's, it, it's one of the three, I would say, primary languages that, uh, uh, that mainframe applications are, are written in and that our ports are used to build. So COBOL, PL1, and, and C to some extent. Uh, programs over on the MVS side um, that uh, need to be built by our, our tools running in a combination of off-host and, and um, in Unix system services. Uh, and VS Code is, uh, while it is the uh, IDE of choice for the new mm -hmm. generation of developers, um, it's hugely popular. Um, and one of the components of Zoe is an extension to VS Code, the, it's called the Zoe Explorer, and it enables a developer uh, on VS Code to browse uh, mainframe data sets and edit uh, mainframe data sets, uh, edit COBOL, um, and then uh, save those save those edits, and, and then you know, the, mm. the DevOps pipeline can kick off the build and test after that. Cool, now of course, for all of that, you know, you're dealing with open source and open source has two major reputations. And one of them is flexibility because you're building on stuff other people did. But the other is a bit of a security exposure as, as they like to say, there's no one neck to choke, you know, when things go wrong, you know, that, that it's, it's kind of nice to, to have somebody who can take the blame. Uh, and because it's kind of got that tragedy of the commons kind of feeling sometimes, I think large uh, sites are, are rather skittish about using anything that Absolutely. doesn't have somebody whose reputation is done. Somebody can talk a little bit about, you know, how, how do you, how, how does Rocket uh, help you know organizations feel secure using open source on the mainframe. Sure. Yeah. Well, we we take it very seriously. Uh, our customers obviously are very concerned 
uh, with good reason with, with some of the examples like, like the log4j example of almost a year ago. Uh, and we uh, attacked this problem uh, both proactively and reactively. Uh, on the proactive front, uh, we run uh, a lot of uh, source scans uh, on every uh, release before we, before we let it out the door uh, to scan for uh, known vulnerabilities, um, to scan for uh, provenance of the code as well. So there's, mm, two, very there's important. two kind of security and legal angles. One is, are there vulnerabilities in the code? And then the other one is, is this really open source? Because I don't want to mm. bring code into my into my shop and find out after the fact that it was it was labeled as open source, but in fact it has some proprietary code in it. Um, yes. So both of those have to be addressed. And so uh, we use uh, uh, source code scans for for both of those purposes. Uh, and no release is allowed the, allowed out the door if it's got uh, you know high or, or critical security vulnerabilities. Uh, we have an SLA in place that is modeled after our, our primary business partner that we adhere to, uh, which is IBM's. And we, mm. we adhere to exactly the same SLA uh, that they do uh, with respect to that. And so that's our proactive uh, mm. measures. Our reactive measures is that uh, there is a, um, uh, a national vulnerabilities database, which is uh, administered by the National Institute of Standards and Technology out in Colorado. Um, and we have a sniffer um, server on our network that is uh, listening to, it's subscribed to the, uh, the national vulner vulnerabilities database. And anytime a new vulnerability is published uh, and made, away, made known to the world, uh, that concerns any of the ports that uh, we provide to our customers, our team is immediately notified. And our mm. team then immediately goes in, takes a look at that vulnerability, uh, finds out, does it apply to ZOS? Because many vulnerabilities mm. don't. Many are operating system dependent, only apply to Windows, only apply to Unix or whatever. Right. Um, so we determine if we're vulnerable um, and then, uh, if we are, the team immediately gets to action, uh, to apply that patch and put out a, a new release. Okay. Now, one that's of the, the things that sort of the reactive half of our, right. our countermeasures. Good, good. Uh, one of the things that's sort of echoing in my, my back of my mind, as you talk about this is the uh, imminent prevalence of containers, uh, under, uh, ZOS, as I like to say, um, you know, that, that on the one hand, Linux containers, but on the other hand, you know, there's there's uh, some pretty reliable rumors that we're going to have more than just Linux and running these containers. And we're going to have this really interesting recursive experience um, that, in a lot of ways, is you know, as, as containers is behaving in an open manner, so that that ZOS becomes essentially a, an open operating system in every sense, not just the original open edition MVS that Unix system services was. Um, so maybe, especially from a, a DevOps perspective, just to load this question down even further, but from a DevOps perspective, how can you see uh, this open source approach and, and all the ways that it echoes through the, the structure of, of uh, the, the mainframe environment uh, really being part of, of uh, how you approach the, the open source uh, opportunities? Well, for, um, if you're talking about running open source uh, in a container, um, hmm. I think most of the time it's either um, the ZCX containers, uh, which is a fairly new product, 
uh, or I don't know if you're referring to, I mean, you can think of uh, Linux on Z. Well, it's not a container, it's a virtual machine, I guess you can think of it. Uh, but in those two cases, uh, there's some things you can do running open source in um, on those two platforms, Linux on Z and an ZCX container. However, it's limited to some degree because it is a different machine. It's a virtual machine yes. both, in both right. cases. And so any, any um, uh, interaction with mainframe data sets has to be first, you have to transfer the entire file, the entire data set mm. uh, across TCP IP uh, protocols uh, from ZOS to that virtual machine before you can work on it. So you don't have direct access to the mainframe data from a virtual machine or from Linux on Z. And so there's a lot of things you just can't do um, right. with, uh, you know, so, so basically you can't, you often can't go the easy route. Uh, it, is, it is a lot easier to get an open source uh, program that pre-exists to port it, if you will, um, onto Linux on Z or onto ZCX, uh, but you can't solve all problems with, with them. And so really our, our ZOS ports address those um, uh, customer use cases where they need direct access to the, to the mainframe data. That makes sense. Uh, now then, uh, I guess, taking a step further into the whole DevOps area, um, how do you see DevOps and, and open source sort of interplaying as, as things move forward? Well, I, I, I see them more and more being one in the same in that okay. uh, it, it's just 90% of DevOps tools that are commonly used are open source. Uh, and oh, so nice. if you want to do modern DevOps, you're using open source. It's just a fact. I mean, there's some tools that are, um, you know, proprietary tools uh, used um, in, in DevOps pipelines, um, but uh, the heart of it is, is all open source. So you really, you have no choice. And of course, I mean, DevOps is a deliberate mashing together of two separate terms, you know, ops with operations, you think of automated operations, then dev development, which has always been one of the biggest things on the mainframe. And of course, the ultimate open source part of, of that is, is Eclipse. Uh, maybe if you can just kind of relate that for us and help us understand the, the role that plays and, and what it says about it. Well, Eclipse is, um, I mean, I, I see it as a great platform, but it's not, uh, it's not today's platform. It's kind of yesterday's okay. platform. Wow. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, I mean, well, it doesn't, it doesn't run on the mainframe at all. And I don't think that mm -hmm. there's a, um, we're not planning on doing any kind of a port of that. Yeah. Um, but certainly there's, there's a lot of software out there that, that's Eclipse-based. It was a very successful uh, open source project. Um, the, it's actually kind of interesting to contrast it to uh, the Zoe application framework, um, which is uh, part of Zoe. So one of the, the four Zoe interfaces uh, is the Zoe application framework, which is also known as the Zoe virtual desktop. Uh, and that is a browser-based GUI experience into, um, into mainframe, into, the, into ZOS. Uh, it gives you a desktop uh, experience similar to uh, 
Macintosh OS X desktop or a Windows desktop, uh, you know, with icons on the on on the virtual desk and the toolbar and many windows from different applications. The difference being that uh, the Zoe virtual desktop is running inside of a tab of, a, of your web browser. So it's zero footprint. So whereas Eclipse was a thick client uh, that you had to install, that you had to maintain um, and Java based. And so it became a bit of a headache for uh, companies because if they had you know, 300 operators using an Eclipse based program, they would have to maintain uh, the the latest patches of, uh, of mm. whatever Eclipse program they were running on those 300 workstations. But those workstations already have web browsers that are maintained anyway. So it's zero additional work to maintain the client software necessary if you have a browser-based uh, interface. Um, also, the Eclipse framework uh, is constrained in terms of the layout of the GUI. Uh, you've always got mm. the, the tree browser on the left and, the, and right. the center panel and the menus, and you have to work within those constraints um, to build your application that is, that is Eclipse-based. Whereas the Zoe Virtual Desktop infrastructure uh, makes use of uh, React and Angular tool web toolkits and Basically, you can do anything you want. So you can design uh, an entirely bespoke uh, user experience uh, and GUI uh, on top of this virtual desktop, all running in a browser. So it's much more flexible uh, for for designing uh, user interfaces. Well, one other axis uh, or dimension of open source, of course, is you know how do you get support? You know, and, and uh, uh, I, I know that even with the security question being, you know, well mitigated by what you're doing, that is still the question. I mean, if I'm a big company and I've already got a license for Rocket Software, I'm already going to get my support. But what if I, as a, a developer or person who's just on the journey of learning the mainframe, wants to get some of this open source you've ported to uh, the mainframe environment? Um, you know, do I have any options for, do I even have options of getting this open sure. source as an individual user? Yeah, our, our policy is, is not unusual uh, in, the, in the open source world. Uh, what Rocket does is, uh, you know, we obviously are, are spending money and, and making an investment. And we have people uh, who, who collect salaries who are, who are doing all this open source work. Right. And in order to fund that, we sell um, support products uh, that support mm -hmm. both Zoe um, and support the, um, those ports, the open source languages and tool ports. And the way we do it is we, we, we let anybody download these ports and install them and, and run them on their systems. Uh, however, if you want the very latest binaries, if you want to be up to date on your security patches, then you need to be on paid support. So there is, there is a delay of a few months before a security patch uh, that, that we make available to our paying customers immediately is then made available to the public download site. Um, so if you want to play with these ports, experiment with them uh, in test systems, uh, you can do that free of charge. And we even provide a, um, a website that you can go to where you can ask questions, you can ask for help, uh, you don't need to be a paying customer to have access to that website. Uh, it's, it, it's called the Rocket Community Forum. 
And customers and users help each other. So it's our team, our development team does answer questions on the forum, um, not at the same priority as our paying customers, but um, you know, we do we do help out our cust our user base that way. Could you read me the URL? I want to include that in the transcript. Uh, I'm sorry, what? The, the URL for that site. I, I'd really be interested in putting oh, that in the transcript. Oh, yeah, sure. Do you want me to get that right now or afterwards? Um, if, if it'll take some time, we can just I'll insert it in the transcript here uh, and you can email it to me later. I think sure. people are going to really enjoy that because, you know, uh, when I interviewed uh, Enzo D'Amato, uh, you know, new mainframer who's got a, a mainframe in his, his garage, I think it is actually, um, you know, and, and uh, asked him, you know, what's what, what advice would you say? And he said, you got to get people who are still in school having access to mainframes. And I'm thinking, OK, well, how do we do that? Well, this is one of those ways, you know, is by making open source mainframe stuff available for personal downloads, uh, you know, and, and if it's not being updated, you know, and supported at the same speed as, as the full you know price. A prediction download it's still being updated and supported and there's a community around it and i think that really matters a lot absolutely yeah we and i mean your your comment about uh you know young young graduates i mean we take we have interns that we mm. um, that we hire every year at uh, at rocket software uh who are still in university who you know we're not even aware that the mainframe still existed and mm. we put them immediately to work uh, working on mainframe applications because we're able to give them an environment which is completely familiar to them. They use PuTTY to, uh, you know, to log in to a Unix, which happens to be running on ZOS. Uh, we, and they can issue their, their Git commands uh, from, from the command line in Bash that they're familiar with. And then we can give them a VS code to do their editing of their programs in, a, in an IDE that they're familiar with. Uh, so they're up and running right away, uh, being productive on the mainframe, uh, thanks to, to, to Zoe and these ports. Now, are, are there some other aspects of the open source experience that you've been sort of right in the middle of it guiding that you'd like to sort of share with people to kind of keep them aware of, including maybe some of the things you're looking forward to? Um, I'm not really sure what you mean. It's uh, Sure. Uh, you know, um, just as, as the person who's you're really on the spot for Rocket for, for thinking about the future of open source, because, you know, it, it's so interesting. I mean, open source almost can't exist without being balanced by closed source, you might almost say, you know, that, that you have to have some proprietary stuff. But, you know, there's sort of like, you know, as little as possible in some ways. But on the other hand, you know, what we need support as possible and as trustworthy as possible, you know, and so this really interesting combination, um, you know, that on the one hand, you can go pure play Ubuntu and, and just have everything but the hardware basically open source, or you can go pure play, you know, uh, Apple and IBM, uh, you know, traditional models where everything has to be controlled and tightly controlled. Um, somewhere in there is, is sort of the aspirational space where the mainframe is, it takes on its role as the, the computer of the future has to really be in innovating, not merely discovering, but innovating ways to do open source in this really carefully balanced way. And, and I think it gets you've got some, some interesting observations and thoughts about how that comes to be and what you can do to make it happen. Um, so I've never, I've never actually thought about that. I don't, <laughs> I'm very much reactive yeah. in terms of, uh, I am asked by our customers, we really need this or that uh, open source ported. Mm. And our team, our team, the, the ones that, that I work on really aren't working on proprietary commercial uh, code. We don't have time to, to think about it. We're, we've got our backlog of open source that needs to be ported. 
um, and new features added to Zoe. And uh, I don't really think about the, the proprietary code space at all. And that's fair. You know, I, I think you, you point out something really important about the mainframe that I've always discovered is distinct from other platforms. We don't do arbitrary bells and whistles on the mainframe. We do business value. You know, that uh, we, we don't come up with a new feature just in case somebody will like it because we are, we're held down by our legacy. You know, that we are so respectful of the past that when we create something new, we are creating more past to take care of. And so I think the, the lesson I take from you in this answer is this is about business value. This isn't about, you know, uh, high in the sky, you know, um, uh, ideas of what if we all did this, you know, and then, you know, try it out and see if it works. We're talking about something that already works. And then customers say, yeah, but it would work better if I did this. Um, maybe if you have some thoughts about some examples of the kind of thing that you know, a big software company might not think of introducing, but when a customer said we need to do it, it's something like, right, of course. Well, I mean, certainly in the area of security, and uh, that's something that the, the mainframe continues to, to lead on, uh, like, like quantum security, for example. I mean, mm, the... the right. uh, uh, the next release of, uh, of ZOS is already uh, going to be supporting quantum safe uh, encryption mm -hmm. um, and those kinds of um, areas. They're, they're very much at the forefront of keeping current. Cool. Well, um, now I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we could uh, address just from the perspective of both Rocket and, uh, and open source and, and all these things here. And I'm just wondering, was there anything else you'd sort of wanted to make sure we, we didn't forget to talk about while we got you on this interview? Well, I guess um, the most important thing I think that, uh, that our customers need to be aware of is to stay current uh, with mm. their software. If you're putting this open source into production, you really need to put in place the infrastructure to keep it current. Right. Uh, because that's what that's what keeps you safe. Okay, that is that's really important advice. You know that that is so important. People think open source is a license to be lazy. You know, and it's precisely the opposite. Vigilance. Oh, no, eternal. not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it definitely it's a huge money saver in terms of um, ramping up new staff, um, mm. and obviously. Obviously, you're not paying anything for, for, for the license uh, for the software, uh, only for support. Uh, but I think the largest um, savings is in uh, getting people up to speed um, because they don't have to learn new software when they come. If you hire somebody mm -hmm. from the outside, because um, <clears throat> the whole industry is using the same, same tools, tool stack. When it comes to you know, software development and, and DevOps, of course. I mean, it's different in the area, for example, databases and whatnot. Right. Okay. Uh, hey, maybe if I can ask you about a call to action, you know, if somebody who's involved in the industry, you know, maybe they're, you know, early in their career and thinking of what to do in their career, maybe they're a, uh, a director or an architect or something and, and having listened to this, you know, they think, okay, what can I do to be taking part in this in a way that helps my organization or helps my career? Uh, what advice can you give them? You know, what, what action should be people be taking based on having listened to this conversation? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked that because we get a lot of customers coming to us saying, I, I know that uh, I need to modernize my DevOps pipeline, but I don't know where to start. Or I have, mm. my executive told me that I have to modernize our DevOps tool chain, or I have to eliminate the DevOps stack that I have in the mainframe and do all the builds of my mainframe apps with this 
other tool chain mm. that I know nothing about. How do I start? Um, mm. And what we found through many years of experience, what, what doesn't work and what does work. And what doesn't work is to uh, give the problem to the, uh, the ZOS application development team uh, to solve on their own. And it doesn't work mm. to give it to the open systems uh, DevOps team and, and, and have them do it because neither one knows about the other's world. And you really have to have a team put together of individuals from both sides who have an open mind so that you have, you know, the, the, the Unix person who's familiar with, with Git and Ansible and, and, and Curl and Jenkins uh, on the open system side um, and put that person in the same room with a, a ZOS person uh, familiar with uh, 30, 3270 emulators um, and, and uh, ZOS and MVS and uh, make them sit in a room together for uh, many sessions until they understand each other's world enough and then they can work together on the problem. You, it's got to be a, a, a team with, with elements from, from both sides to be successful. That is so incredibly important and it gets into a little bit of a uh, human resources kind of thing is how do you get people who are oil and water to each other to, to mix together and, and make something wonderful? Uh, are, are there any approaches you've seen that are especially useful for throwing these people into the same room and having live people come out afterwards? Uh, I don't know, Myers-Briggs tests? <laughs> you you got to ah, have people okay. that are, <laughs> that are open-minded. <laughs> mm, good point. Yes. All right. Um, so... Peter, this has been excellent. I don't want to uh, miss any other opportunity. If there's anything else you'd, you'd want to share, just for us to be keeping in mind. I think that that pretty much covered my world. No, I think that's okay. uh, that's about it. Okay, well, thank you so much, Peter. I've, I've really enjoyed this and I've gotten a lot out of it. Um, so I'll be back with another podcast next month. But in the meantime, check out the other content on Tech Channel. You can also subscribe to their weekly newsletters webinars, ebooks, solutions directory, and more on the subscription page. I'm Reg Harbeck.